0: y'all welcome to BA in science I'm Maggie that's Brenna hi and we can't wait to tell you all about a badass human who also happened to be a scientist actually today we'll be covering math more than science Mm. which Brenna yeah you can hear the groaning already she's not thrilled about it but fear not I've got a little brawl as a part of my section and some history so that should liven some things up okay okay Let's deal with our weekly business before we do anything else. Please remember wherever you listen to, rate, review, subscribe, favorite, follow, all of that, because it helps other people find us. And it also helps you be notified of when new episodes come out. Mm-hmm. If you want to follow us on Instagram or on Facebook, we're at BA in Science there. You can also email us at BAN Science at gmail.com if you have something we need to know. Don't forget about our Patreon, you are missing out because I have it on good authority that some of our patrons were actually laughing legitimately out loud at the bonus episode this past week after the Max Pettenkoffer BS episode, so you're missing out, you need to go over there and listen to all of the good bonus content because it's fun. So any addendums from last week before we get started i have some guesses to shout out mm, uh,
1: i don't think i have anything
0: all right well um ashley s who has been a faithful guesser this season guessed uh that we'll be doing Leibniz today which mm. is not right but a very good guess also cindy c guessed georg Cantor, which is a really 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 good guess and still wrong so those Didn't two- mom or dad guess Leibniz as well I think dad did, yes. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So also a good guess. Yep, those are those are solid guesses, but we are covering someone who is not either of those people today. And I wish, this is not the first time I will say this, but I wish we will have a chalkboard for this episode. But mm-hmm. those are the only addendums that I have and you don't have any. So should we take a break and get into it? Yeah. Now I'm hoping that... Our BA was an interesting person with an interesting life. And yes, he made our list. But as has happened at least once this season, I don't remember why. Because you can't just make the list because of your contributions. You have to have something interesting about you. So hopefully, Brenna, after you give us our quote and tell us who he is, you
1: can also tell us if he's interesting since you had his bio this week. Okay. So, this man, our BA, once said about math when first beginning to learn it, that the study suited my humor so well that I thenceforth prosecuted it not as a formal study, but as a pleasing diversion at spare hours when works on the subject fell occasionally in my way. Same, dude. Which, from the little I know about what Maggie should be talking about, I feel like that's a crazy thing for him to say. Like, oh, just like for funsies.
0: Yeah. I don't, I don't know if, if the kind of math he did is something I would consider relaxing and good for, good for a hobby. A uh, you, you all can decide that. Uh, yeah, I yeah. would call it a diversion. It's not, it, well, that's not true. It's very diverting, but not maybe a the pleasing
1: way diversion. Math is never a pleasing diversion for me. So, mm.
0: I, and all this, right. sorry, well, dad. Well, we'll get in. You, you, I'll tell you exactly how I feel about his math when we get there because mm-hmm.
1: I got a story to tell. So our BA today is a guy named John Wallace. Um, To be honest, the name meant absolutely nothing to me. Like, you know, Maggie and I kind of go over who we're going to pick, but Maggie does a lot of it because she has like our master list or whatever. And so he shows up and I'm like, "Mm, never heard of this dude. So did something with math because I don't have to do the math part. So yeah, we're going to find out all about him. I'll be honest. I had heard of him
0: outside of him being a mathematician oh so that is why so I I knew he's he's got some kind of BA something in there
1: Hmm. I knew him as
0: not a mathematician and as a mathematician and I don't so tell us
1: I I cannot wait to find out what on earth I was thinking because I don't remember Okay. okay so John was born on November 23rd 1616 in Ashford in Kent he was born to John, of course, and Joanna Wallace, which that's just a lot, but okay, a lot of John, but okay. But Papa John, not the pizza, but his dad went to Cambridge and was the minister of Ashford. Joanna was actually the daughter of an heiress of like a wealthy London merchant. So like they weren't too bad off. Um, And I remember like clergymen didn't do so bad for themselves at this point in time, I don't think. Like they, that was like a pretty, okay, like a second son going into the clergy was like, not that bad. Like, oh Oh, yeah,
0: no, he, like he wasn't, he would have still been like a gentleman. Like, like you weren't a peasant to become clergy, you were a second son. So you were, you were, you were gentry. So, and he married a rich merchant's daughter. So that's Mm -hmm. like, they were, they didn't have a middle class, but if they did, that's probably where they'd be, upper middle class.
1: John had two older sisters named Sarah and Ellen and two younger brothers named Henry and William. So he is the middle child. Yikes. I don't know that he was like vibing as a middle child though his whole life. I don't know.
0: I think that actually, based on what I know about how his career went, being the middle child might have put him in good stead.
1: All right. Well, Papa John died when Johnny was six, leaving his mom with all these kids to deal with. But she felt that education was very important and saw to it that the kids did go to school. Now, at some point during his early educational years, I don't really, I don't think I wrote it down, but, there, the, you know, the plague, that, that's a thing that's still happening in the 17th century. I've heard of it. Yeah. So the plague strikes and Ashford is getting hit hard. So he is sent packing to Tenterton and then Felstead in Essex to finish up his schooling. So by wow. the time he gets to Felstead at the age of 14... He's like kind of gone through his classical training. He knew French, Latin, Greek, English, Hebrew, logic, and music. Okay. Notice what I didn't mention as a subject, but yes. (laughs) Yeah. So from a young age, he apparently had decided or his parents had decided. I don't really know. I mean, he's the oldest son, but he decided he wanted to go into the church like his dad. I thought it was kind of from the eldest son, but I mean, his dad's a minister. So I guess maybe that's... It's not like his dad was just like some bougie landowner, you know. Right. It's so he, his dad
0: his dad wasn't a duke or an earl. So
1: yes.
0: he had a choice as an older son to go into
1: his dad's business, which yeah. was being in the church. So he felt like that's that was his calling. So okay. Um no before heading to Cambridge in 1632 he would actually be at Emmanuel College within Cambridge right his brother comes home with an arithmetic book or something and John's like "Oh, mm, huh, teach me a little bit of that so that's this whole oh math is this fun pleasing diversion blah 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 well when it's just arithmetic i could see that yeah i mean i'm pretty good at adding and stuff at cambridge i read that he studied logic ethics metaphysics anatomy etc which seems like a lot of random things Because he's wanting to be a minister, but okay. But in 1636 or 1637, because I saw two different dates, he got his BA and then four years later had his master's degree. But while working on that master's, he also took holy orders in the Church of England and was a private chaplain to start out. Okay. So for a year, he was chaplain to some dude named Sir Richard Darley. And then in 1642, he was working for a widow named Lady Vere. Um, While he was in that gig... Somehow or another, I don't know. A coded message ended up in his hands for deciphering, and okay. apparently the cipher was like a new alphabet. It had twenty three characters, and I don't know. I read somewhere he cracked the code in two hours.
0: That's uh, that's fast. Like so from this, a, from a code breaking standpoint, yeah. that's quick.
1: I mean, like, can we? I mean, obviously these people writing in code aren't doing a good job, but this starts a long career for John as a code breaker, cipher guy, whatever. Why are we why are we getting enemy message coded messages? Okay. So okay. The 1640s were a wild time for John, for England. Okay. And I just I can't, I'm not rehashing this whole deal. There's a lot of religious and political drama going on. There's something a little something we call the English Civil War. I mean, we call it the English Civil War. I don't know what they call it over there, because we distinguish it as the English Civil War because we have the Civil War. I feel like we corner the market on that, even though we did ours way after theirs. But still, but again,
0: as we've proven with things like the Revolution, nobody does wars on our home turf quite like I mean, we do. You know, so not, that, not that the Civil
1: War is probably something to brag about, but regardless, we, here we, we are.
0: Listen, we were really kind of going for it. So you know, I'm going to talk whatever. about. I'm going to talk about the English Civil War a little bit too. So it was a big... So
1: whatever the English people, if you are in England and you are listening or you were just an Anglophile, which I feel like I should know this because I am, uh, let us know what they actually call it because I don't know if they call it the English Civil War. I feel like they probably don't call it that. But anyway, maybe they just call it, maybe they just call it the Civil War and maybe they call ours the American Civil War. Which would make sense, but I don't know. Anyway, But little something called the English Civil War and it's, it's complicated. I just, mm, it's complicated and I just don't have the energy to go into it. Okay. Okay. So when he starts deciphering messages, he's getting himself involved basically in all that business. So he was apparently really good at code breaking. Um, Although one cipher was over 700 numerical figures and other characters, he managed to decipher that, but it took several months.
0: Oh, well, that's,
1: that's a reasonable timeline, 700 yeah. numerical figures and whatever, just really quickly, just so we can kind of have a sense of what's going on. Cause it does involve the church and stuff too, whatever. Uh, Scotland was like trying to be Presbyterian and then like this Bishop's war going on. And Johnny gets all caught up in that at one point, like beyond just code breaking. Cause he gets elected to be a secretary to the assembly of divinity at Westminster which was part of that whole Parliament and the bishops are against the king. Episcopalianism is too poppy, etc. Yeah. Like if you've heard of Oliver Cromwell and Roundheads and Cavaliers and like all that, that's it's that stuff. I'll
0: I'll be discussing that because it
1: actually intersects with his his career quite okay, significantly. Cool. So, okay, yeah. cool. So like that's just our like you know this is when I take something super historically significant and. Just condense it down to like two sentences and leave out all the details and the complexities. Yeah, I and mean, that's how a, I'm doing that history. So it's you know. it's, it's a minute waltz in thirty seconds, basically. Right. So all this is going down, okay. And then the same year, we're still in 1644. Parliament writes an ordinance to Oxford and is like, "Yo, your boy John wallace is going to be a fellow at Queen's College." Okay, okay, thanks um which is exciting because as we've discussed like you fancy if you a fellow right oh, yes very fancy actually john might have been a fellow at cambridge except for there are apparently like rules that only one person per county could be a fellow and they already had a guy from kent so he couldn't be a fellow or something which rule. feels like a dumb rule but whatever Okay, so John is code-breaking, and he's with the Fancy Pants Bishops at Westminster, and this fellow at Oxford, and you know what else he decides to pack in to 1644? You know Mm. what we're missing? A wife? A wedding! Yay! Yay! So he married a woman named Suzanne Glide, and what's a big bummer is that married dudes apparently don't get to keep fellowships at college. That's not fair them's the rules which i mean might have changed because what's his face um ramanujan ramanujan had a wife ramanujan a had fellow. a wife in india and he was a fellow but that was a long time after this, this so i like guess 300 ish more yeah. years yeah give or take so maybe they decided by at some point that, that was a dumb rule well the church of england was wedding their priest marry
0: so how are you going to say that they can't be a fellow? I feel like that that was something they had to reconcile.
1: I feel like. I mean, maybe they felt like it would take you away from, like, your fellowship duties stuff because you were married. I don't know. But by 1645, he's no longer a fellow. But don't feel too bad because he's going to keep getting lots of opportunities to do all this stuff. Now, because we're talking about his family really quick, um, I know not really anything about his wife, Suzanne, other than, you know... That's her name. They would go on to have some children. John in his auto, he did write an autobiography actually. So John lists three by name that survived childhood and only makes reference to others who died young. So we don't know how many other babies they may have had, but he did have three that survived. And those were John, because of course. Of course. um, He was born December 26, 1650. They had Anne on June 4, 1656 and Elizabeth on September 23rd, 1658. So probably, I mean, I'm guessing there were babies in between uh, yeah. John and a- Elizabeth, but I just, or I mean, sorry, John and Anne, just because there's a six-year gap.
0: Yeah, they just were you some know. of the ones that died Maybe, maybe the
1: 1600s of it all. Anne Wallace would go on to marry some dude, Blanco, or something like that, but she has her own Wikipedia page because she basically kept recipe books that was, like, published after her death. Oh. anyway like she has a own. yeah she has her little wikipedia page that's interesting but like like old-timey recipe like obviously. yeah like, like well they when they used to call it like receipt books oh yeah. man mm-hmm. isn't that cool so you can google her you can google Anne wallace lenko or something She had seven kids, five of whom survived to adulthood, and John had three children. So the Wallace line continued on. I didn't track them after the great-granddaughter, who was the one that found Anne's recipe books and got them published or whatever. But, um, you know, just like your average 17th century family, having kids, kids having kids. Yeah. So so floating around in England are
0: descendants of John Wallace.
1: I would assume so, because they're, I mean, a great-granddaughter... Was the one who found Anne's recipe, so she would have been probably, I mean, at least an I mean, a century later, probably, and then, yeah. you know, I don't know, I would think so, I would assume so, I would assume so. I mean, there are other Wallaces that name is, I mean, that is a surname that's over there. Like yes. whether it's from John Wallace, and because he had he had siblings, so whether they're direct descendants or you know, sure. whatever. Anyway, okay, so that's like it's just a short snippet of his personal family life okay so in 1647 he became the minister of saint martin's on ironmonger lane i don't know why we know that but we do um but around this time his interest in math was kind of revived put a pin in that because i'm sure maggie's gonna fill in all the stuff that i'm just skipping over oh yes but i guess with that revived interest in 1648 or 1649 i read different dates the current civilian professor of geometry at oxford got ejected yes now, from what i could tell you was a royalist i'm going to go into that okay whole mess cool. okay, but he cool. was a royalist okay so you know remember that whole civil war thing so i'll put a I'll pin be, in it in yep right. put a pin okay. that. so he'll be some professor okay So he's doing math stuff, but John was a renaissance kind of man. Mm. He wrote, like literally, he wrote works on a wide variety of things like earthquakes, tides, music, and theology, to name a few. Um, He also, in 1652, wrote a book about English grammar that had the quote introduction on the production of the sounds of speech which i don't really know exactly what that means but apparently was it was a popular book because it has six editions printed the last of which was published in 1765 over a hundred years since the first publication maybe that's why he got on the ba list because that's a pretty big deal is i mean that's not my favorite story about him i have a funnier i mean i have a more favorite story about it about him but I mean, that is pretty cool because I just have to, so this book included etymology of words as well. And like the source, um, I was reading about this said that John was the first person. I love this so much. I can't even tell you how much I love this. Be ready. Hope you're sitting down while you listen. Be ready to have your mind blown. I'm sitting down. I can't wait to watch Maggie's face. Okay. John was the first person to point out that quote, Whereas the names of the living animals are derived from Germanic roots as ox, cow, calf, sheep, hog, boar, deer, etc., the names of the meats prepared for food are of French origin as beef, veal, mutton, pork, brawn, venison, etc. Stop. What? How? Guys, isn't that like, I'm such a nerd, I am just geeked out when I read it, I was like, That is one of the coolest little fun facts that I have ever heard. I don't know. Because I've never thought about it. Ever. 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 And why? What? Like,
0: did did John say why? Or did he just like, hey, here's the thing that I noticed. I don't know. I, I want to know. Well, it could just be because the French are really good at making food. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Hey, oh my gosh, I just said something nice about the French. There, there, our one French listener. Oh, I'm yeah. giving you that. You guys yeah. you guys do it. food like nobody else. And you know what? If anybody deserves to have the prepared meats named for their language,
1: it's you guys. Yeah. So yeah. Isn't that so 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 cool? That's phenomenal. I love that. Love it. I love it. Okay. Um, so anyway, he's cruising along in life and doing his code breaking stuff. Um, I read essentially he would give 60 years of his life off and on basically helping decipher coded messages. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What's funny though, is that I read some of his personal correspondences where he talks about all the hard work that he has done. And like, he was committed, like, I got to help my country, like blah, blah, blah. He also did want like recognition and money and stuff to go along with his very patriotic work. Oh yeah. So I found uh, I found a source where it was like um, actual like first person like letters, personal correspondence, mm-hmm. and so forth. So here's one of his letters to the Earl of Nottingham, who was his direct employer, basically for time under William III, William the mm-hmm. Third. I am almost ashamed to tell your lordship how much time and pains and study I have employed on that very perplexed cipher in the letter from Poland, and have not yet dispatched it. But by what I have done already, I find two things which seem to me of moment. One is a treaty, or entreaty rather, of the French king with the king of Poland presently to make a war on Prussia. The other about a marriage of the princess of Hanover with the prince of Poland promoted by the French king. How far it may be of concernment to us to know it. I am no competent judge. But I had thought it did become me to give this timely notice of it, lest there might be a prejudice by delay, while I am preparing to give a fuller account of that letter than yet I can by the next post or the next after it, if I have not, in the meantime, ordered to come up with it in myself, who so am my Lord, your Honor's very humblest servant, blah, blah, blah. So, one. So it's like,
0: hey, I'm going through this. Listen, Your Grace, Honor, mr majesty there's some things
1: going on with prussia and poland and the french and i don't know know if it's a big deal but i'm going to tell you about it because i don't i don't want this tea to get cold yeah but also i feel like he's like hey look how awesome i am because i'm gonna let you know all this important stuff oh yeah it was definitely tooting his own horn yeah um but he also wrote a lot of letters like this pointing out like his time and effort spent in you know his endeavors and how he would like his majesty in the court to recognize it Um, And when he does not get his pay and or recognition, he is not happy. So there's another uh, example of a letter where he has to decipher, quote, a hundred sheets of paper. And he didn't get anything to show for it, as you'll hear in this. But but when I am employed in troublesome work by persons of honor, I expect they should do honorable things. And if therein I am mistaken, it is their fault, not mine. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's yeah, really calling him out like he had,
0: do- he, he had some salty words for some for some people.
1: That those, okay. those aren't the only salty words we're going to hear from him. Okay, good because I mean I think he had beef with a lot of philosophers and mathematicians and stuff, right? Well, he had
0: serious beef with one of the, if not the most famous philosopher in England possibly ever, okay. and definitely of this time. And we Okay, I won't spoil it because I think
1: I know who you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, um, he. And it wasn't necessary. But I actually saw two names that are pretty big.
0: Well, you'll have to tell me who the other one. If I meant if I don't okay. mention who okay. you're thinking
1: of, you have to tell me when okay. I get when I get there. Okay. But I guess he does get enough recognition and such because in 1654 he gets his Doctor of Divinity and then gets himself appointed as a royal chaplain, which seems like a big deal. I feel like that's a step. I didn't up. find like a whole lot about it. Like I didn't read too much about like what that meant, but like royal chaplain is kind of like a thing, you know. Yeah. Probably. I feel like it's a big deal. Yeah. He was also appointed to a committee that was to revise the English prayer book, which I thought was kind of fascinating. That is cool. Yeah. In 1657, he got appointed as Keeper of the Archives at Oxford, and there he developed a catalog system that was apparently so fantastic that they used it until the late 1900s.
0: Define which late nineteen
1: hundreds. I don't we know
0: because we are technically from the late nineteen hundreds. I they still know. I don't know. They colors. didn't.
1: They did not say. But still, they that's wild. Say. I just found late nineteen hundreds, which I mean has to at least be past nineteen, like the nineteen fifty. To me, late means seventies, eighties, nineties. Like if you say the Agreed. late, any decade or any century or whatever, it's the last like seven, eight, nine, right? Yes. And I bet you that's probably mostly a result of technology and like digital archiving and stuff more than anything else i bet bet that's that's probably what made the changeover is when so i probably was the 80s or 90s when there were computers wow that's that That is actually wild yeah okay so he's vibing and in 1660 the royal society in london was formed and wallace was elected in 1663 as one of the original fellows which i think is a pretty big deal i'm going to talk about that too okay cool i don't know why he got elected as a fellow really but you know, we'll find out. It's a a very interesting story. That's why I am sharing Yeah, I kind of skipped over it. It's just kind of like, here's a thing he did. Okay. Oh, there's a story. Okay. So he really helped the Royal Society of London gain traction, I think. He got involved with the Royal Society of Oxford, gave them a huge boost in recognition. So just um, his involvement in these organizations kind of elevated their status from what I could tell. Um, after this though, I didn't see much about him other than like he's working and publishing stuff again, kind of across the board in terms of subjects. Though I think math was the focus, Mm -hmm. which is why I don't have a lot to tell you at this point, because I think it's a lot of math. It is. Okay. So, and this is, this is my favorite part of his story. Okay. In 1690, and I cannot remember which source I read this in, but I know I read this in one of my sources. He published a very controversial work called Letters on the Doctrine of the Trinity. Okay. I did not try to read this or do a deep dive or whatever, but one of the sources I read said that somehow he tried to explain the Holy Trinity using a geometrical model of a cube to relate length, width, and height to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I'm not really sure how I feel about it. I... But, Big like, it. this feels like a hot take. A little bit. Yeah, it feels A like... hot take for any century, but especially the 17th century? Like, I don't feel like this is the way you want to go, dude.
0: No, don't try to explain. Like, they, this is still just past the point when you could draw faces on holy people in art without getting like Galileo it wasn't it too or far in
1: the past like you know,
0: i know like and the spanish inquisition as we found out it's still happening guys <laughs> yeah. like i just feel like i'd be really careful about publishing anything trying to explain anything in the
1: church unless you're Not agreeing only... with someone that especially already... pretty much one of like you know the biggest mysteries
0: yeah that's kind of the biggest one
1: left <laughs> i would say like, like a big one kind yeah. of, kind
0: of like you know
1: the the nature
0: of God himself that's kind of a big topic I'd say to cover in a a pamphlet
1: or a paper yeah right a treatise I don't know yeah I I don't know. Yeah. letters on the doctrine of the Trinity. anyway yeah that was my favorite fun fact about him because wow I just feel like that's gutsy for a lot of reasons
0: yeah it really was
1: yeah, it really, especially considering some of the other things I'm going to tell you about him. It might be a BA move. It might be a, um, a BS move. I'm not really sure, but it's it's something. It's a move. It's a move. In 1692, Queen Mary II wanted to make John Dean at Hereford. He turned down the position, which like I don't I don't know if you know this, but like you don't really tell a monarch no, especially not when it's a promotion yeah I didn't know that was a thing you could do who is this guy not right but I mean I guess good for him like nothing bad happened to him for him saying like no thank you wow okay yeah one of John's friends was Samuel Pepys who you've probably heard of um he's famous for his diaries I mean among other things but like I remember having to read excerpts from one of his diaries and, you know, Western Heritage 101 in college, whatever. Sure. But Sam commissioned a portrait of, quote, that great man and my most honored friend, Dr. Wallace. Aw. Hmm. Um, And I think that's in Oxford somewhere. I think like whatever, like like, the portrait is still somewhere. Oxford's probably right. That's probably right. I don't know. So John overall lived a pretty long and healthy life. I didn't read anything about illness or anything major, like no nephritis, no, you know, no malaria or cholera or, you know, none of those things. I mean, other than like he escaped from wherever he was in Kent to go uh, elsewhere to avoid the plague. But like, from what I can tell, he didn't get the plague.
0: Because yeah, mostly if you did, you died.
1: <laughs> it, so. wasn't, it wasn't was a great outcome, but... It would have been a shorter episode. <laughs> yeah, people did survive it, but, you know, it wasn't great. No. Um, So he died on October 28th, 1703, at the age of 86, which is pretty impressive. And, I don't know, old age. 1700s. Old. Yeah. The 1700s of it all. You're 86, yeah. and it's the eighteenth turn of the 18th century. And, yeah. Yeah. So... That's John. Well, I mean, that's John minus all the important math stuff he did, but that's John. That's, that's what I got. awesome.
0: Maybe then maybe the BA stuff is in my second. I mean, there was some definitely some BA stuff in there, especially like all of his job changes and this his writings and that he honestly that he lived that long in that century is quite frankly an accomplishment in itself. I mean so yeah, that's awesome. So are you ready to find out? I've teased a lot of things because there's there's some drama and some tea in his career and in his math.
1: I mean, I'm not going to lie. It better live up to the hype because you know how I feel about having to listen to a lot of math stuff. So if we're going to be breaking it up with like fights and drama, I, I'm I'm here for it. Okay. Then I
0: think you're going to be happy today. So okay. let's take our break and we'll get into it. Okay, Brenna, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder.
1: Yeah, we definitely do. It's an MCAT test prep program like no other. MCAT prep can be super expensive, but this is prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really want to keep costs low.
0: The big thing about the program, though, is how good it is with really excellent concept explanations of and visual learning, thousands of practice questions with explanations,
1: and full MCAT practice tests. If you've ever looked into the MCAT, you've probably looked around for complete programs that are made by experts. These courses cost thousands of dollars, which make it super impractical for the average person.
0: MCAT Ladder, though, has over 100 full scholarships available now for both self-paced programs you can start anytime, as well as for intensive and boot camp type programs with dates throughout the
1: year. Right. The whole idea behind Proton Guru and the MCAT Ladder is high quality MCAT prep that's accessible to more people, not just those who can afford thousands of dollars. So go on over to ProtonGuru.com and check out
0: all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT Ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. I cannot lie to you. The math I have to discuss is a lot. Not in that I'm going to talk about math for hours, but this, I and I maybe have said this before, but I didn't mean it because this is actually the hardest episode for that I've ever had to write in terms of being able to write a concise and understandable segment because the math that he was doing not only was completely new and novel at the time, it is very much upper level stuff that the average person is never going to even hear about. In school if you are not going into math and science you're not doing this math but to keep it interesting i've got political intrigue i've got a brawl i've got a major shift in the way we view mathematics for all of time so you know there's good stuff here and it won't be all it won't be all calculus because that's where we're headed Brittany,
1: Yay. you should mm. see your
0: face she actually dry heaved it's fine
1: <laughs> and
0: oh and what else is super fun is that here we are again with a lot of complex math that I have to explain with no chalkboard and minimal to middle personal experience also because as you all know Brenda doesn't want to delve into this heavy math but I'm telling you the mini brawl is fun okay now I do want to say that the discussion that I'm about to walk you all through is not exhaustive of this topic because it's huge and complex and involved so many other people. But what I'm going to focus on is how John got his job, the Royal Society, Mm -hmm. the most influential works that John published, the people Mm -hmm. who are not fans of John, Mm -hmm. then in our legacy section, we'll kind of discuss how John changed math literally for all time. Okay. So, I like how a lot of that sounds like not math. I worked really hard at that because as I, if I had a chalkboard and this was a video, mm-hmm. we would be doing more math, but here here we are. So. Mm-hmm. Let's start when John was appointed civilian professor of geometry at Oxford. Okay. Okay. It's important to note that this was purely a political appointment and nobody thought John would actually become an awesome
1: mathematician.
0: He did not get right. hired because they were like, "Hey, you know who's good at math? John." They were like, we need someone who hates kings
1: and is working for us already.
0: that's already working for us, so the, as Brena said, the man who held the chair before John was Peter Turner and he was a royalist, a royalist in the sixteen hundreds was it's someone not a who was su- to be well, no because it was someone who <laughs> supported King Charles the First, who was honestly the worst and without going into years of English political history as Brena avoided as well, I'm just going to tell you that from sixteen forty two to
1: sixteen fifty one
0: the part of the English civil war that we're concerned with was going on. Because mm-hmm. not the whole time, like there were three civil wars. Right. Yeah. Right? yeah, it was like three three separate yeah. civil wars smooshed into one Things. civil war. Yeah, yeah. Well, because yeah.
1: there's like the Bishop's War and then the... anyway, yeah. Anyway,
0: yeah. Okay. The fight was between essentially the royalists who wanted to keep the monarchy and the parliamentarians who were done with the monarchy. King Charles, the aforementioned okay. monarch,
1: good reason they're done with monarchy for good reason for good reason let me all
0: of us over here in america are like right on right on we would we would totally have stand this we stand this whole thing because listen king charles the first ended up being beheaded due to his complete refusal to be reasonable about literally anything okay and to this point is the only king english king with the dubious honor of being beheaded Mm. other kings
1: how the the mistresses uh yeah there were some mistresses Nell, what's her face and stuff like I, is that him was I that Charles? That
0: was, I, I think that was him his mistress his complete inability to lead the country eclipsed even that he was so bad hmm.
1: yeah i am gonna like you know to the side google charles one to see if he's the one there's i thought it was a charles it was the one that was like there's a lot of mistresses it
0: might have been charles the second but we'll get there because while you're googling that but Mm -hmm. when they beheaded king charles the first that was when the monarchy was abolished Mm -hmm. but wait you're saying right now england still has a monarch they're about to have charles the third be their king
1: oh yeah oh yeah oh weird weird.
0: the last time we had a charles was king charles the first son charles the second
1: maybe it was charles the second who was a terrible person (laughs) anyway
0: Listen, the whole no king thing didn't really work out at all. So then there was this thing called the restoration of the monarchy when Charles II, who was Charles I's heir, was made king. And he promised to play nice with Parliament because King Charles just kept abolishing Parliament. And Parliament was like, you literally cannot do that. So <laughs> he got beheaded. And well, he they- was like,
1: I don't, I don't want
0: you. I don't want you. So bye. And they said, <laughs> that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works? And he said, yeah, it is. I'm the king. And they said, off with his head. So then when Charles II got in power, he was like, no, of course we can hang. It's going to be fine. We're,
1: uh, I'm besties with Parliament. It's going to be great. It was King Charles II. You're it right. Was,
0: it was Charles He II. was the
1: play. It was Nell Gwyn. I couldn't think of her last name, but Nell Gwyn, Nell Gwyn, Gwyn was yeah. one of her. His, his famous mistresses. And he probably, I'm just reading now, he had at least six other ones, but. He was perfectly happy to let Parliament do his job because he was skirt-chasing, so. Yeah, he was just one to be a playboy and just, you know. And
0: he very much was. Uh, But in 1648, before King Charles II got back, the Parliamentarians were cleaning out the universities and removing royalists. So, as we mentioned... Peter Turner was the royalist, John was the parliamentarian, so he was politically a really good choice to take over for Pete. Uh, in fact, as I said, being a parliamentarian was his only qualification, as he had never taught or published any math before, ever. One source Solid. I yeah. One source I read said that he was buddies with Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, and that's how he got the job. So and Oliver Cromwell was the one who was in charge during the in between time after after the monarchy was abolished and before the restoration and that did not go well. He ended up with his head on a pike rotting outside the palace for several years,
1: so yeah, dude didn't have a good ending. Was he the one though that then went and made all the churches like whitewash all their beautiful paintings because it was like popish or something was that yeah, him? He did a lot in very uncool things he was a very uncool dude to be honest
0: had no so, chill no zero chill oliver <laughs> cromwell zero chill is 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 what we would say today yeah uh, but side note when charles ii took back over wallace kept his job mm-hmm. so he didn't get kicked out because he was a parliamentarian mm-hmm. when charles ii the king mm-hmm. the the you know once in future king took back over so Maybe he was just really good at networking and he was politically savvy. Maybe because then he was working for William Th- III mm-hmm. at some point. And that's why I'm telling you that I'll talk about this a little bit in the legacy, but middle child, man, you got to know how to play both
1: sides. I guess. Because then what's her face, queen, whoever I told you? She was like, yeah, I'm going to make you whatever. And he's like, no, thanks. What he probably said was a whole lot of really flowery,
0: gorgeous things with a no hidden in there <laughs> right in the middle. And she was just like is the nicest guy we need a different dean though for some reason he's not gonna do it i don't know what he (laughs) said that's probably what happened he was that kind of guy oh my goodness okay so again we're doing history right now i recognize but all of this is important to his story hey i'm not complaining complaining. i know i know you prefer this and there's another little bit of history i i need to to go Mm. into but this and this relates to the math and to the mini brawl okay so at this time in history, geometry is the primary representation of mathematics. Arithmetic and algebra were basically shorthand for discussing a geometric truth. Okay. A big part of that is thanks to Euclid. In the history of math, Euclid's Elements is the oldest existing deductive treatment of math. Deductive, in this case, means that you begin with statements that are true, like axioms or definitions, mm-hmm. and then... You use those statements to prove whatever conclusion you're headed toward. And you can use algebra as part of this deduction, but each new statement builds on the last. So for that reason, the entire field of logic and a lot of modern science was born because of Euclid's elements. Was like,
1: that the one that Hypatia added some notes to and everyone was like, oh, Hypatia. Was it that one? No. Oh, okay. Well
0: maybe i mean she worked she worked with that one too i don't know if that's the one you're thinking of but okay i don't i don't i don't remember if that's the one you're thinking of but that but that one was one of the ones that she worked on okay yeah she did more with conics though Mm -hmm. oh yeah that's right yeah
1: did more wrote some notes anyway
0: anyway textbook editors are important Hmm. anyway So deduction or deductive reasoning therefore is how mathematicians approached math at this time, which worked really well for a really long time. And it still does for those of you who took or who are taking your average secondary school geometry class. If you had high school geometry, you did proofs and that is straight, almost word for word. I mean, it's not Greek, but almost word for word out of Euclid's elements. That's how that math looks. It is that ancient.
1: I liked proofs. They were one of the only things I liked. About I liked geometry. proofs too.
0: I really, I'm definitely a Euclidean geometrics in the sense that that is, I prefer to approach math from a deductive lens, mm-hmm. from a deductive viewpoint. Mm-hmm. But at some point, it became unbelievably difficult to use only deduction. So the natural counter to deduction is induction. In the case of mathematics, induction is very different from induction. First, you prove that something is true in one instance, like I'm gonna prove this is true for X. Then, and and here's where we have some mathematical heresy. This was very, this was literally mathematically heretical at the time. You're gonna assume it's it's true for every case. I don't feel like that's good science, but all right. We'll talk about it. Okay. So you're going to assume it's true. Like, okay, I, I'll, use, I'll use numbers. That might even help because, again, I don't have a chalkboard, and that makes it difficult. Okay. This thing that I'm saying is true when x equals 1. Okay. Let's assume that it's true for x equals n, which is any number. Okay. Then you're going to prove that it's true for at least one other case and write your conclusion. Mhm. That's a really 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 and I know that dad is like breaking out in hives and other <laughs> mathematicians are too because that's not a great way to uh, to explain inductive reasoning and inductive proofs but that's the basic idea. Because as you can what you need to know is you made an assumption.
1: The most and important. you know what thing, happens when you assume. Go on.
0: Well, you end up with calculus. So Assumptions are not where I was going with that, but all right. Well, you know, it's, it's a family show. Okay. Assumptions are literally not allowed with deductive reasoning. And all math until John's time was based on deductive reasoning. Mathematical purists of the day, like Pierre Fermat, for example, would not use induction to prove anything. But I have to say that if Pierre had used it to prove his last theorem, maybe we wouldn't have wondered about it for so long. But that is a discussion for another day. If you couldn't use deduction to do what you were doing, it wasn't considered math. Now, that's a big reason why math and science were almost entirely separate until John. Science required experimentation and trial and error, and that was not a thing in the world of math which posed a problem for a lot of people, including the Royal Society. So, Brynna told us that John was a member of the fledgling Royal Society, and John really wanted math to be a part of it, but the society was kind of iffy on the subject, and you can understand why. The Royal Society was about advancing science, which required experiments, and math wasn't experimental. It didn't fit in. Mm -hmm. so John decides to take math into the experimental realm he's like oh okay well I'll just do my math in a way that's useful to science and we're good to go which sure and I really think that because his mathematical education had been completely like anyone else's John was able to think that way without any discomfort he didn't have a formal education where it said Math is deductive, period. The end, he saw an arithmetic book and he was like, this is cool. So it was a very different mindset for him. Honestly, I really do believe that sometimes we need people who don't know the rules to move us forward just because they don't know that something can't be done. And John was just such a guy. He always had enjoyed math and now it was his literal job to study it. Okay, so. Six years after getting his cushy new job, he had published two important mathematical treatises. One was called On Conic Sections, and Ooh. here they are again, and the other was The Arithmetic of Infinites. Both of these books caused quite a stir, and kind of all of Europe read them. So now let's kind of get into the discussion of the work in these books and how it impacted all of mathematics after it forever, because it seriously did. John started his book on conic sections. John started his book on conic sections with the following quote: "I suppose to begin with, that any plane is made up, so to speak, of infinite parallel lines, or rather as I prefer, an infinite number of parallelograms of equal height, the altitude of each one being 1 over infinity of the entire height, or an infinitely small alicott part the sine infinity denoting an infinite number. So that the altitude of all equal the height of the figure. So what he's saying there is that when he's looking at a plane, he's not thinking of it like geometers think of it. He's looking at it as if you sliced the plane in a different direction than the one you're looking at, there would be this parallelogram where the height is infinitely small. So think of when you're peeling layers off of an onion and not like the skin. I'm talking about the see-through layer that you put on a slide and you look at under a microscope, that one cell layer. He's saying that every shape is made up of a whole bunch of those unbelievably infinitesimally small layers. And that paragraph changed math because no one had thought of like geometers and Euclid's elements. That is not how we discuss planes at all like at all. But another big thing that happened in that paragraph is that he actually introduced the symbol for infinity there in that paragraph. Mm. It was, you know that little sideways eight? Yep. Okay, you you may hear it or see it referred to as a limnisket. Generally, a limnisket is a figure eight shape, shaped curve, and this one is sideways. The word comes from the Latin word for ribbon, which Dad was probably texting us before I said that. So why did Jod choose this symbol? He never said we don't know. Some say it resembles the Roman numeral symbol for 1 million, which is the letter M with a bar on top, or it could be an adaptation of the Greek lowercase letter omega or omega, which looks like a little curved W. Either way, he was the first one to use it in math and will become Wait, did you that. call it omega? Some people say omega in math. Yeah, I know. I I don't. Some people do. I say omega, but um can an
1: actual scholar of greek
0: it's omega i think it's omega but some confirm people or
1: deny the proper greek pronunciation of that because omega yeah. i've heard i've heard it that way before i
0: don't think it's right i say
1: omega but
0: i feel there... like it's the
1: same people that say phi instead of phi it probably is it probably is because the I'm sorry here. but it's not C because by your logic then pi would be p and that's an absolute no for me
0: <laughs> that's a no it's
1: not anyway well anyway. if any of my old college buddies who took greek listen to this podcast I'm gonna need you to hit and, me and, me tell up me why, and tell me p. why
0: and tell me why some people say omega because I have heard it that like I, I have heard it that oh way gosh. oh I have yeah yeah
1: sorry I know that's not the important part in this story but I couldn't I couldn't let that one go by.
0: Anyway, put, put pi. No. Anyway, put infinity, the lemniscate, in your satchel. We'll be coming back to that. Okay. Okay. So John's efforts in on conic sections is the basis for the work that he's most famous for, which is Arithmetica Infinitorum or the arithmetic of infinitesimals, which I mentioned before. John really wanted a different approach to math, wherein the foundation was algebra, not Geometry. And he wasn't specifically unique in this. Like, remember, I mentioned Fermat earlier? Well, despite his criticism of John, John had used Fermat's methods to shift math onto algebraic foundations. And this is where Descartes comes in. All
1: right.
0: Guys like Descartes always constructed a curve geometrically first, then found its equation. And we know that from doing analytic geometry and algebra one and algebra two. And sometimes algebra three it depends on how your your math is split up. but you construct the curve geometrically and then you find its equation. Vermont looked at equations and generated curves. He said here's the he did it the opposite way. He started with the equation, not the picture. And that's the big difference between geometry and algebra. Geometry starts with the picture and moves away from it. Algebra starts with the equation and moves to picture, okay? Okay.
1: John, now it's like this formula means it's a parabola or whatever. Yes,
0: John, that's exactly the example I was going to use. John wanted to look at an equation and say, oh, that's a parabola. Like we do, like y equals x squared. I know that's a parabola without drawing it, right? Not, I don't want to draw a parabola and then backtrack to find the equation. Yikes. In conic sections, he had defined the conics not as slices of a cone, but as equations. So he treated everything in Arithmetica like this not just that you could consider everything from an algebraic point of view, but that you should because it's superior to a geometric point of view. He did this with proportions and like all other kinds of stuff. So now, Take infinity back out of your satchel. I mean, because I, I really hope it's in there because we got to discuss. It's in there. Okay, we need it. So dust it off. You know, here we, we're going to use it as much as we can because infinity is a hard concept. And I don't, I you you Brenna know this and dad knows this and anyone who has ever taken one of my classes knows this, but I almost never use the word hard when talking about math because I really do believe that it creates a barrier to success. But it does apply here. Is infinity a number? Is it a place? Is it an idea? One author called infinity, quote, the twilight zone of mathematics, end quote, and he's totally right. For example, think of the highest number you know. You don't have to say it. Think of the highest number you know. Now add one and add one again. You can literally do that forever. You can always add one and get the next number. We might not have a name for that number, but it exists. That's infinity, right? Consider a number line. You've got a point called zero and a point called one. Divide in between there, divide that distance in half and then divide it in half again and keep dividing each section in half forever. You can always divide in half. That's always, that's also infinity. So you can have, as I have just shown, infinitely small and infinitely large numbers. Uh, For example, in the case of John, he was going to be dealing with infinitely small numbers or as he called them, infinitesimals. The word infinitesimal means infinitely small. John was saying that geometrical figures could be decomposed, cut up into infinitely thin building blocks, the same dimension of the figure. And when you stack all of those infinitely small blocks up, you get the whole figure. Brenda, you might connect this to of Riemann's sums, where he was making rectangles underneath a curve. A what sum? Never mind. You don't remember that from calculus. That is just fine. Those of you out there who do remember Riemann's sums, it's that's connected here, okay? But this idea that he had does sound reasonable to to those of us who have studied calculus extensively. Instead of the view that geometrical figures are constructed by us from mathematical principles, John's like, nah, those figures are given to us and it's our job to examine them, take them apart and see how they work. So for John, a plane is an infinite number of lines stacked on top of each other. So think of a triangle. Are you picturing a triangle right now? Mm -hmm. I hope everybody's picturing a triangle. Picture a triangle. Now, cut it up proportionally using lines parallel to the base like draw a line halfway between the base and the top of the triangle. Now you've got a line halfway up the triangle, right? And you've got a cool series that's gonna relate to the base and the line in the top, zero, one half, and one. Got zero, one half, and one. Now repeat that process forever. Just keep dividing your triangle like that into an infinite number of parts so you have an infinite number of lines. When you do that, you've got this really awesome arithmetic series. And if you add up all the terms in the series, you would be able to tell what the area of that triangle is. Well, everybody knows how to find the sum of an arithmetic series. Gauss made it famous, but lots of people notice. You add the first number and the last number, and then you multiply it by the number of terms. What? Okay, the sum of all the numbers from 1 to 10. Uh Add the first number and the last number, 1 plus 10, that's 11. Uh Uh And then we multiply by 5 because that's half the number of terms from 1 to 10. So we get 55. If you add up all the numbers from 1 to 10, it's 55. And that's the trick. Gauss did it famously. Brynn is going through that in her head. Brynn, who already said she was good at arithmetic, is working through that real quick. It works every time. So if anyone ever... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that so Gauss again, Gauss did, I didn't
1: learn this. Maybe I did. I don't you, recall
0: learning. You this likely thing. didn't because it's not something that necessarily would have come up. It's part of you hear Does it, it
1: work on, always for everything? Ever? Any set of numbers I want to pick, it will always work. Yes.
0: That's number theory. That's this is this is this is heavy number theory stuff. And the proof of it
1: is elegant, Do I have to start but... at one? Can I pick any? So I could just say. The sum of all numbers to, from twenty to
0: twenty-seven. Guys, I I'm almost have, tempted to try math. I guess you have homework. Brenna, Brenna, report back to us next <laughs> week. It will put it in an addendum.
1: Play this around. Called with a what Gaussian something or other?
0: Look up Carl Friedrich Gauss. And well, well
1: I mean, I know about. Ga- I mean, uh, we talk about like the Gaussian curve.
0: Yes. Look up Gauss and arithmetic series
1: Hmm. and it'll it'll be
0: right there because they tell the story we're taking a swerve here but it's important Gauss was a like he was his dad was a professor and he was in his dad's math class one day and there was a visiting professor who was like trying to stump the class and he said what's the sum of all the numbers from one to a to a hundred and every and nobody in the class could do it quickly and Carl Friedrich Gauss was like oh and just like blurted out the answer and the guy was like, you cheated. He said,
1: uh, no, I did it this way and made the guy look like an idiot. And so one to 100, 101 mm-hmm. times 50. Mm-hmm.
0: You get 5050 when you do that, 5050. And that is the sum of all the numbers between one and 100. Hmm. Mm hmm. That's why I did from one to 10, because that's one that you could sit there and do 10 plus nine plus eight plus seven
1: plus eight. You'd okay, like but that. I'm still going to pick a different set of numbers and do it again. You should. That's what Gauss did.
0: He probably proved <laughs> it by induction. He proved that it was true for one to 10. And then he said it's for anything <laughs> from N to N plus something greater than one. And then that, I mean, he, that's probably how he proved it. Because it's, hmm. his proof is, it, it's elegant and complex. It's number theory. Okay.
1: Okay. Sorry. 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 I didn't mean to derail us. I just...
0: No, that's a good bit of math that I'm glad you asked about because John was like, hey, let's do that with my infinity triangle.
1: So it sounds like less fun, but okay.
0: Okay. Well, if you do a little... uh, I mean, it's not a little bit of algebra. It's a lot of algebra. But if you do some algebra, which I'm skipping because you don't care, you can prove using these methods that the formula for the area of a triangle is A equals one half base times height. John didn't need to use a compass and a straight edge to construct a rectangle and then divide it into triangles. That's deduction. That's how you prove that the area of a triangle is one half base times height deductively. You cut a rectangle in half and the area of a rectangle is base times height and a triangle is half of a rectangle. So the area of a triangle is half base times height deductive. He started with the triangle, broke it apart, made a light assumption or two, and came up with the same thing. Now, disclaimer, modern mathematicians are cringing really hard about all of this because part of those assumption involves dividing infinity by infinity, which we know to be undefined, uh, but he did not. And something that's also really upsetting to those of us who like Euclidean geometry, like myself, is that his technique here makes mathematical rigor unnecessary, which is very upsetting. You don't need constructions or proofs or first principles or anything, which for a mathematical purist is horrifying, but for someone trying to use math for science stuff, it's fine. One of my sources used the idea of a geologist who studies a rock formation and writes a paper on it and then chucks it all out because of a spelling mistake. The spelling mistake didn't change the actual results of the paper, okay? In the same way, John seemed to think that mathematical rigor can get in the way of discoveries, which Mm -hmm. I don't disagree with on the whole. One paper I read said, I think said it best when he said, quote, in order to validate his arithmetical results, he had to show that they yielded the accepted geometric conclusions. To do this, he first derived a series of arithmetical ratios and then deduced from them many of the known ratios of areas and volumes. That, in a nutshell, is what John Wallace did that no one had tried before. And the Royal Society loved it. They could totally use this. and And John wasn't even saying, hey, chuck all that other stuff out there and replace it. No, he was... He was just trying to broaden everyone's options where mathematical investigation was concerned. But not everybody thought that John's work was awesome. And one such guy was Thomas Hobbes. Heard of him? (laughs) You probably have heard of him. It's kind of a big deal. Thomas Hobbes is an extremely well-known English philosopher who lived during the time that John was alive. He wrote, among other things... A book called Leviathan about social contract theory. I can't possibly go into all of that right now because it is unbelievably complex, but it centers around the idea that those who are governed consent to give up some freedom and some rights to those who govern in order that the rest of their rights are protected by the ones governing. If any of that sounds familiar, especially to you Americans out there, that's because a lot of what he wrote makes up the foundation, one way or another, of many modern political theories, and a lot of them aren't great. So, the average American is going to have questions for Thomas Hobbes. I'll say that. Tom was influenced by scientific ideas of the day, much like John was, and Tom went so far as to set up his political theory, like geometry where conclusions follow inevitably from the premise the main conclusion of hobbes's political theory is that people can't be secure unless at the disposal of an absolute sovereign so unless you've given up everything to an absolute sovereign you can't be secure uh-huh that's lame oh. it it's the the whole idea makes again as an american makes me say what two thumbs down one hundred percent. Two thumbs down zero stars but he also said along with that that no individual can hold rights of property against the sovereign and the sovereign may take the goods of its subjects without their consent which to americans is totally gross because that's not ideally how things go here like all of that is a thumbs down like the more i'm reading about it it
1: is because the government does not ask me if i would like to give them all their their tax dollars that they steal from me but okay
0: ideally that's not how it works Mm -hmm. You know, but we do have laws against the government putting soldiers in your house and saying, we live here now because Russia doesn't (laughs) have those same laws as we found out from our Ernie Bow episode. True. Right. So it was very much how things were going when Tom and John were kicking around England with the whole Mm -hmm. civil war and the question Mm -hmm. of, should we keep the monarchy or no? Hobbes was, you might be surprised, probably not, to find out that he was a royalist. Mm. yeah and he knew a little bit about geometry and he was a big fan of the rigidness the rigidity of it Mm. he was well known as some his his vibe he was known his personality was rigid and unyielding he considered those that disagreed with him and his theories fools and he especially despised john john who was politically very savvy as we have heard Mm -hmm. and who had a flexibility about him That was nowhere in Tom's makeup. John, interestingly and unsurprisingly, also despised Tom. He thought Tom's dogma was self-defeating. If your belief system denies the possibility and legitimacy of dissent and acknowledges only one single truth, well, that won't make it easy to be friendly, will it? And I agree with that. That's good insight there, John. So, John and Tom's brawl lasted for like 20 years. Oh. Oh, yeah. And it's not getting its own episode because technically Hobbes wasn't a scientist. He was a philosopher, maybe a polymath, but not sciencey enough for him to be a main character. And if he was, he would have ended up in a BS episode thanks to his theories on the government from Leviathan. Because, dude, no. But the brawl does fit perfectly here. So Tom wrote a book called De Corpore. It has lots of stuff in it. But what we care about is that Hobbes made his case for mathematics being bound to geometry. Okay. Also important to remember is that Hobbes was on principle opposed to any kind of experimentation or experimental philosophy. Literally the exact opposite of what John wanted for modern mathematics. So in 1655, John published a, quote, scathing critique, according to one source of Tom's Mm -hmm. geometrical efforts in Tom's book. So Tom wrote this book, and there was some geometry in it, and John read it, and he said, you're not good at that. So it starts, as these brawls often do, in the professional sphere. But then it gets personal. Oh. Yeah, John kind of pushed it in that direction first, I think. Oops. Oh. I don't, and it wasn't, listen, if Tom wasn't the kind of guy that he was and such a fussy old man about all of these things, it might have gone different. But he said, John said, quote, and these are direct quotes from correspondence that mm-hmm. they, that just out there in front of God and everybody. <laughs> quote, no one can doubt how puffed up with pride and arrogance is this man. And, mm-hmm. and Tom said, excuse me, that is uncivilized. He still stooped just as low because Tom's rebuttal to John's critique was called, quote, six lessons to the professors of mathematics one of geometry the other of astronomy like dude you're not even sneaky we know who you're writing this to and you're gonna you're gonna give lessons to a professor of math the audacity where did tom keep all of his audacity is what i'd like to know so you've got tom not a mathematician arrogantly telling john and his other colleagues in geometry of like like tom is the expert in geometry which is disrespect in the dedication of that rebuttal, Tom went so far as to say, quote, I have done the business for which Wallace received the wages, end quote. Okay. Yeah, okay. Like, And shots fired. Like, Tom barely spends time defending his own work and instead moves on to drag John's work, saying, quote, I verily believe that since the beginning of the world, there has not been nor shall there be so much absurdity written in geometry as is to be found in those books. The symbols are poor, unhandsome, though necessary scaffolds of demonstration, and ought no more to appear in public than the most deformed necessary business which you do in your chambers. And Jeez. for those. Of you- Yeah, for those of you who don't know, the use of the term necessary here is probably an allusion to using the bathroom, because your bathroom is called a necessary. So he's saying algebra is literally crap. Literal human excrement. Tom even said he refused to read John's conic sections because he couldn't deal with all the yucky symbols in algebra.
1: Oh, yeah, mature. I mean, I, I don't know, something to be said for icky symbols and algebra, but you know.
0: But if you're going to critique someone's math well, right. and you're refusing to read their work, well, out, okay, you Fair know, point. inform Fair yourself, point. my dude. So John, of course, wrote back and responded to some of Tom's harsher criticisms. But Tom treated John like a child and brushed him off saying, quote, your book of the Arithmetica is all not from the beginning to the end. Like, my dude, this this guy, like this guy so tom was better rhetorically he was he was a better speaker he had a better way with words and he did have a sharper wit but john had strength and time of youth the Mm. sheer volume of denunciations that john wrote made it hard for tom to stay in the fight Mm. john as we have seen was also far better connected politically and he turned the faculty and royal society against tom Hmm. John went so hard that by the end of the feud, Tom was considered a philosopher who had strayed from his area of expertise and been exposed as being not very good at math. I think that,
1: isn't that true? I mean, wasn't he only a philosopher who wasn't good at math? He wasn't bad at math. He was just really stuck on geometry
0: and very inflexible destroying tom's mathematical credibility was kind of a necessary step in preserving the new direction of the government because tom wanted everybody back under a big deal king and tom really tried to use geometry of all things as the underpinning of his entire political philosophy
1: two things not to use geometry for Um, being a royalist and defining the trinity So I would say that both John and Tom made
0: some questionable choices there. That's what I like if I had to stop
1: trying to use geometry for these things. It's just don't just just don't it just stop. Right.
0: So but if he was going to use geometry to underpin his entire political philosophy, he had to demonstrate that geometry could solve all all outstanding problems. But it couldn't. One notable example is squaring the circle, for those of you who are curious. That's finding the area of a circle, which you can't do without pi. And Tom couldn't do it at the time because it wasn't possible with his approach. So his mission was doomed from the start, which did not stop John from piling on. Every time Tom published a proof, especially on squaring the circle, finding the area of a circle, John demolished it. But Tom can't stop, won't stop, and went to his grave convinced that he has done it was wrong about that, and John made sure everybody knew it. John's mathematics had survived a brawl with Tom, and it was the future of math. But before I tell you exactly how that worked out, let's take a break. Because John's legacy in terms of mathematics is pretty impressive, and that actually might be why he's mentioned in this episode. So let's take a break. I definitely think that John was BA and he has a very important legacy, but I am also a mathematician. So Brenna, I'll let you start. For non-mathematicians,
1: how do we feel about John Wallace? So I actually want to read a quote from the end of John's autobiography. Mm -hmm. It hath been my lot to live in a time wherein have been many and great changes and alterations. It hath been my endeavor all along to act by moderate principles between the extremities on either hand, in a moderate compliance with the powers in being, in those places where it hath been my lot to live, without the fierce and violent animosities usual in such cases, against all, that did not act just as I did, knowing that there were many worthy persons engaged on the other side, and willing whatever side was utmost to promote, as I was able, any good design for the true interest of religion, of learning, and the public good, and ready to do good offices, as there was opportunity. And, if things could not be just as I could wish, to make the best of what is. And hereby, through God's gracious providence, have been able to live easy and useful, though not great. Thus, in compliance with your repeated desires, I have given you a short account of diverse passages of my life, till I have now come to more than fourscore years of age. Wow. Yeah, my favorite part of that is, yeah, there've been a lot of changes and alterations in in my life. I mean, that's like a big understatement. You think like a big understatement, but yeah, I don't know. It's funny because I feel like he's like I was totally even keel about everything all the time. I was totally chill, but that is not the case apparently when okay. it came to Hobbs.
0: Well, I mean, and his older age, he as people do, he mellowed out quite yeah. a bit. a bit but he still was determined to and I I really do think that it was Hobbes's personality that 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 made it worse if Hobbes had been any other kind of person it might not have
1: like Sheldon from Big Bang but like times a hundred yeah yes okay yep okay I mean that's what I'm envisioning but yeah we're not talking about Hobbes I don't know I mean I had some pretty good fun facts about John Wallace I mean his life wasn't Well, I guess being a code breaker for your country is kind of a cool side gig because it was a side gig. It wasn't like his only job. No, right. So that was interesting. And the fact that math still really isn't his like profession, like he's a minister or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, oh, let me do all this complex stuff, math stuff on the side. Yeah. I don't know. He's kind of cool. I learned math things today that I didn't hate. Yeah, you have homework, but homework that you're looking forward to. Again, you got to report back to us about... I'm going to pick small series of numbers, though, because I don't want to have to, like, add a lot of numbers. No, but... what do you, wait, what do you do if there's an odd number of numbers in the series? You said you have to take half. I guess you'll find out, won't you? I'm not going to tell you. It's your homework. Do you just, like, if it's nine, you just take four and a half? I don't know. You don't know. Of course I do. Of course I. Of
0: of course I do. I'm not telling you.
1: (gasps) Fine. I'm going to do one that's only three numbers. Great. Make it easy. Okay. One to three. Hold on. One to three. Three plus one is four. Four times one. That's not going to work. What's four times one and a half?
0: That's annoying. For those of you out there who don't do good with fractions, it's six, which is three plus two plus one. It
1: is six, but that's annoying. So it is just a half. (sighs) So Brenna will report back
0: anyway. So yeah, I'm glad that you learned some things about math. And when I post the pictures for this episode, I will post some drawings of of john's diagrams about the triangle that he was slicing up and some other things so you can kind of visualize it because i know it's really hard without pic ironically it's really hard without pictures and considering how much we want to get away from geometry but sometimes you still got to draw stuff even in algebra but i think that he was an absolute badass and a total rebel the the high points of his mathematics are as follows first he moved numbers into the abstract like in a broad sense, like he moved away from a number being associated with a quantity. In geometry, you don't have negative or complex numbers because all your quantities are physical things. You don't have negative area. You don't have negative length because it is an actual length. It is that number is tied to a distance or a physical amount. Mm-hmm. But when you move it, numbers into the abstract, you could, like you can have negative numbers you can have imaginary numbers so I don't believe in imaginary numbers i know you don't you're not a mathematician <laughs> but they but they're there and and oh, as i've said before they? they are and they're proof that humans make their own problems and then cry about them that's what well,
1: they're, they're as real as spooky oh spooky
0: spooky mm-hmm. was very real to you Spooky was born Timsy friend. But Timsy was mine, yeah. Yeah. Okay, friends, tell us who your imaginary friend was yeah. because we Did all had that. Yeah.
1: My husband thinks it's kind of weird that I had an imaginary friend. Oh my gosh, that's... but I'm like, that's because you're boring. Yeah. I mean, that's like developmentally appropriate for people to have imaginary friends.
0: And some people have them in the form of like stuffed animals, is there like becomes an imaginary friend type of thing. He might have done that. So anyway. Wallace interpreted negative numbers as distances in the opposite direction to the positive, like to the left of a given point. Hey, guess what? That's a number line. And that was kind of new at at his time. So that's kind of a big deal. Second cool thing. He rediscovered Cardano's formula for the cubic. What? Yes. because Cardano? Yes. Cardano had done all this work. He is our boy. And his work was lost, like happens. And... John Wallace rediscovered it. So Mm. I know when I read that, that was thrilling.
1: I get excited when I read stuff where they name another person and I actually know who that is.
0: I know. It's like, oh my gosh, I know him. I know him. I know him. Most importantly, though, John's stated aim of writing Arithmetica was to encourage others to investigate like he did rather than just prove stuff like Euclid did. So there's nothing wrong with proving stuff, but there's not a lot of new discoveries to be made when you're proving what other people have already proven. Mm -hmm. we want the discovery part of that so here's a little fun little fun tidbit for you in 1665 there was this guy named isaac who came along wrote a little thing called principia Mm -hmm. where like all the rules of physics are written down and isaac added in some math that he Mm -hmm. needed to make it all work this is sir Mm -hmm. isaac newton in case Mm -hmm. you haven't caught on he said that John's arithmetica was one of his main sources of inspiration for the calculus that he wrote. So this idea of infinite infinites, infinitesimals and infinitely small slices of triangles and that whole idea, that's foundational to what Sir Isaac Newton did. Analytic geometry and calculus, what we've been talking about today, are main pillars of mathematics, and they are used to get rockets to space, deal with electrodynamics, monitor the movement of the planets. It's literally everywhere. And John was really the one who got things moving in that direction. So in terms of math, he is a visionary. And even though his math makes me somewhat uncomfortable, again, infinity divided by infinity is not one. Don't do that. That uh, It's upsetting. <laughs> But because like that's mathematical death. You've died. You've passed away. That's that's not a thing. But from a math perspective, he was he was again revolutionary. But also as a person, I love how politically savvy he was. I love that no matter who was in charge, he was kissing butt, keeping his job, <laughs> and just vibing through all of it. I I love that he's that he was. Selected for his job because he was such a strict parliamentarian, and then when the king was back in charge, he was like, "Oh my gosh, I love kings!" And Charles II was like, "Cool, do your thing." Unbelievable to me because not not as as we know, not everybody was capable of
1: doing that. There was a lot of a lot of upheaval. Although again, you know what Charles II probably wasn't a great judge of character. I think he. Well, I mean. Nell wasn't a bad choice as a mistress, to be
0: honest. He he was accidentally maybe a good judge of character, but okay, things okay. had been different for her. But yes, through all of the monarchs that he had to deal with, he kept his job and he kept getting other appointments and he was yeah. refusing appointments and doing all these things. So I think that part of his badassery too is his ability to network and kind of float to the top and just see which way the wind is blowing. And I don't think that that makes him disloyal or wishy-washy i just thinks it makes him smart so he's definitely yeah. a ba for me definitely a ba for me I'm, it was as difficult as it was writing my segment which was as literally as concise as i could make it this guy was pretty cool i'm i'm glad that we did this guy so
1: you want to talk sources uh sure i had the life and work of john wallace by scott brown and luke smith 2016 I had the correspondence of John Wallace. Um uh the autobiography of John Wallace, uh F R S, and that was actually published in Notes and Records of the Royal Society of London, but they published basically his whole work in there. Yeah. Um, John Wallace as a cryptographer by David Eugene Smith, which was a paper I read, and the Bulletin of American Math society i don't know some some abbreviation that i don't recall um and then another one from the notes and records of the royal society of london that was just like a biography on him nice
0: nice i read uh, many parts of a book called infinitesimal by amir alexander and it really was on john wallace thomas hobbes all of the politics all of Mm -hmm. the math All of it. It was a very interesting Mm -hmm. book. So if this subject does interest you, it was a book that was not overly heavy on math. It was still Mm -hmm. in there, but -hmm. it was also very much about the main players politically at the time and, and all of that stuff. So if you're, Mm -hmm. if you're a history person, this is a very good book for you. Um, There is math in there, but it's not the sole focus. Mm -hmm. Um, I read parts of a book called From Five Fingers to Infinity by Frank J. Svets. Um, I did get a copy of a of Wallace's The Arithmetic of Infinitesimals that he wrote, translated by Jacqueline Steddle. And it was amazing. Like, it was amazing. I enjoy, I really enjoy reading it, but the, Brenna would not have. So mm-hmm. if you're a math person, you would like it just because it's so interesting, the way that he talks through things and his his intro is neat. Like, it's just like a lot of cool stuff in it. Mm-hmm. I read, oh, I read Symbols, Impossible Numbers, and Geometric Entanglements
1: by Helena Pesior. And I you give me right. a hard time for my chemistry title paper titles.
0: I know. Some of these, well, okay, so here's the here's the next one: The Creation of Continuous Exponents, a study of the methods and epistemiology, no, epistemology of John Wallace by David Dennis and Jared Confrey. So yeah, that was a lot too. Um, and then I had some just web websites about how to define
1: math stuff,
0: math stuff. Cause it's not like, I don't know how, but can I do it without drawing it? No, sometimes no, I'm not necessarily good at that. Yes. I have a degree in math, but that doesn't mean I spent all my time in analytic geometry and calculus. I spent a good bit of it in number theory too mm-hmm. and algebra. So those were my sources. So I think we're ready to tease next week,
1: right? Right. Sure. It's going to be short and sweet. What our next, our next week's episode or your oh, teaser. teaser? Okay, It's a bird. It's a nurse. No, it's our BA. Oh my gosh. If you guys don't get it,
0: you will. Everybody will. Everybody should. All of our listeners, all three of our listeners or however many we have now. It's hard to it's hard to get a count of you guys. I hope there's more than three of you. We love you. Tell us your guesses. We'll shout out every single person. better be who able
1: to shout out all
0: of you all of you should get it. This one's, and and it's going to be a good episode. I have some interesting stuff uh, for for us for next week. I'm excited about that one. And then after that, we're getting into our two-part season finale. Mm -hmm. So, which is going to be, I'm also really excited about this because it's something that I'm an expert on that is not math. So it's gonna be fun and not murder also not murder, not true crime. Cause mm-hmm. I, I also am a bit of an expert on that considering how many true crime podcasts I listen to. So, mm-hmm. so but that's all I think I've got today. Do you have anything else? Nope. All right. Then until next time, live dangerously, do science.